the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Should a well-known college coach be getting flack for speaking at a right-to-life event? And then, where do most pastors see deconstruction happening? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Aubrey Sampson is gone for the week, so Steve has been gracious to sit in yesterday. Today, he will be back, Lord willing, tomorrow. So uh, if you missed any of yesterday's show, go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, Steve, I'm still battling COVID, so I've got like that froggy voice. I'm sure that's great for radio. So, uh, but other than that, life is good. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing man? well. I got the silky smooth voice. No, I'm I'm kidding. <laughs> I got a one year old. So that's you never, true in you general. Have a froggy voice with a one year old. <laughs> the silky smooth voice from you in general is true, but uh, yeah. So thanks for sticking with us today. And uh, we're glad that you're with us. All right, man, here's where I want to jump in. We didn't touch on this yesterday, uh, but it's hard to go a day without talking about the um, the emotions around the abortion debate right now, ever since the overturn of Roe versus Wade, or obviously even before that, uh, but especially since that, uh, you know, we saw some Democratic Congress women and men get, uh, I think, arrested at the Supreme Court yesterday. And you're hearing all sorts of rhetoric on both sides. It's it's very inflamed. That is what we can say. And so with that in mind, there was an interesting story I saw yesterday. Uh, and that's uh, University of Michigan head football coach Jim Harbaugh. Now, background of Jim Harbaugh, he is a Catholic. And so he was asked to speak at the Plymouth Right to Life dinner and auction at St. John's Catholic Church in Plymouth, Michigan. And here's some of the things that he said. He said, um, I believe in having the courage to let the unborn be born. I love life. I believe in having a loving care and respect for life and death. My faith and my science are what drives these beliefs. And then he quoted Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And a lot of the talk was about courage uh, and this and that. And uh, I, I don't want to talk about what he said, Steve, as much as I want to get into the reaction. He's getting in kind of the mainstream, if you will, sports media and media at large. Uh, Jim Harbaugh is getting killed right now for speaking at this right to life uh, Catholic dinner, even though he is a Catholic and this and that. And And I thought it would be interesting to discuss this. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I am increasingly surprised by the inability for people to go, okay, you believe this, I believe this, or the inability to say, like a year ago, if Jim Harbaugh spoke at the Right to Life dinner, it wouldn't have made a difference even in Michigan, let alone 
nationally. Do you find surprise that – let's take this story first. Are you surprised at all that Harbaugh is getting – I mean, he's getting killed on Twitter and other places for even having the nerve to speak at this event? Yeah, I honestly, I, I am surprised just because I'm, I'm kind of like uh... – it, especially particularly people who are Catholic, like there, there's a long standing yeah. like the the history of, of politics around this issue with people who are Catholic. It, it just it just it's automatic. It, that's it's automatic. If, right. If you're um, a part of the Catholic Church that you you have historically always been on this side of the aisle when it comes to this particular issue and. You know, I'm a, I am a little surprised that, like, when it comes to things that are centered around a decision based on someone's faith, that they would get as much flack as they have gotten. Um, I do think that there's more. The issue is more complex and nuanced with a lot of different, right. um, you know, kind of like m- medical decisions that need to be made and policies that need to be shifted and things that need to be talked through for those uh, people who are in poverty and what it means to be pro-life uh, all the, uh, across the board um, for those of us who are Christians. Um, but I, I'm a little surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I think he was caught a little bit off guard if you saw some of his uh, things. So let me ask you this, like you said, Steve, uh, anytime there's something in our country, and right now it's abortion, uh, anytime there's something in our country as a whole that is just inflamed, where people are, you know, sp- you know, making it really personal towards other people, you get on Twitter right now or wherever else, and it's pretty crazy. I like to ask the question, what's the role of the church and the Christ follower right now? Like, how do we respond, especially if a lot of the uh, of the grenades, if you will, are being thrown our way? Uh, how do you think this through? How do you speak to your church? What do you think the role of the church right now, particularly in this inflamed debate, is? Well, I, I think that sometimes, especially in this particular season of our country's uh, history, there's this sense of, like, we stand up for truth no matter what or we we kind of yeah. no with no seasoning of compassion no seasoning of empathy no uh no shades of 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 grace and i just think that that's inherently um i i think it represents christ in, a, in a, an incredibly poor way and i shouldn't expect people mm. who are not christ followers to have the same ethic that i do uh, when it comes to some of these things, and I, I, in some ways, yeah, I, I can say like for the betterment of my neighbor holistically, I have the civic responsibility to participate in uh, politics, in things that protect uh, or don't protect certain people's lives. Um, but I, I think the the job of the Christian is to be a listener uh, and to be full of grace and truth. And I, I did this kind of reaction, right. re- reactionary othering of people like that's fine for the world to do. That's fine for uh, people who don't follow Jesus to do. That's not fine for the Christian. And ultimately, the objective mm. of uh, followers of Jesus to reach people with the gospel um, I'm just curious as, as to how the our evangelistic um, sort of sort of uh, opportunities are dwindling because we want to react the way the world reacts to stuff. And so yeah. I, I think we just got to yeah. keep taking stuff on the chin with compassion and grace and um, 
and express ourselves in the way that that is accurate to what we believe, but expect to be hit yeah. on the chin. That's an interesting way to put it. Expect to be hit on the chin. It seems like the church right now uh, doesn't isn't okay with that. And uh, it I'm good with I feel strongly about this topic, right? Like it, it is it's important to feel strongly, but but how do we respond? Maybe do you have a, a thought uh, before we close this out? If not, if we don't respond the way the world is, how do we respond? Like e- even in areas that we feel strongly about that are major um, points of contention, what does a Christ-like response even look like, though? Yeah. So one one of the things that I think is is vitally important for for us as uh, Christians to uh, to recognize and and to be a part of is like traditionally, especially for my brothers and sisters who have been in the sort of middle class America, and and you know you you're in your middle class suburb of the world and you're you're separated from poverty you're separated from uh people who vote differently than you people who like you're in some ways you're in a bubble and so uh mm. for, and and i think the the christ follower is the person who crosses lines um and uh and horizontally reconcile if we've been vertically reconciled to god we horizontally reconcile to others and one of the things that i think that Mm. a lot of people uh feel like christians are missing is the care for those who are poor uh is the care for those who you know what i've got uh i've got three three kids at home and i don't like literally i i will I won't have money to feed this child and this child is going to have a poor experience in the world because I can't do my job as a mom. Um, And so there's an organization here in the city called Caris that helps single parent moms. And I think the, the biggest thing is that like the, the front foot should be how we're loving and serving single moms, how we're mm. figuring out how to get the adoption price to come down, how like we can be passionate That's about good. about um, uh, about the right to life. But then so how are we emptying the foster care system? Like what what, mm. are, what are we doing? Mm. So on the other end, I yeah. just personally am, am, am if I'm not willing to just jump at those opportunities, then for me to to be um you know, sort of like stalwart, uh, on why, you know, on this particular issue to me, that's hypocrisy. And that that's uh, the job of the Christian is, is to go, uh, care for those who are the least, the lost and the left out. And I, and I think actually the, the people who this issue impacts the most are actually those people. And so, um, mm. as much as, you know, we might look across the aisle to the progressive person who is, is like, it's my, it's my body, my choice. Um, I think what you're, you the the reality of how many of these decisions are made in poor brown neighborhoods is a lot higher than it is in anybody else's neighborhood. Interesting. Wow, thanks for saying that. Steve is coming out guns blazing today. I appreciate that, man. That's a really good word. Steve, remind us. Uh, love having you on, man. So thankful for you. Remind us where you pastor. 
where it is. Give us a website where people could get to know the yeah, church sure. more. Yeah, uh, sure. We're, we're just a stone's throw away from the United Center. If you're familiar with the United Center, um, we are just south of Rush Hospital. If you are familiar with, uh, mm. with Rush Hospital or been there. Um, and uh, our website is RenewalChurchOfChicago.com. Um, and so that's, that's where you can find, uh, information about us and we're on YouTube and you can listen to sermons and different things from, from our website as well. What is the name of your one-year-old, by the way? People who aren't aware, yeah. Steve has a one-year-old, so his life has been turned upside down in beautiful ways and in sleepless ways. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, remind me, what's the name of your boy? So his name is Trey and, uh, his, his, uh, government name is Stephen Gary Copel, and so he's the third. Uh, he's the third Stephen, so we call oh, him. Oh, I got you. I was like, how'd you get Trey out of that? Okay, okay. Oh, that's awesome, man. Uh, so anyway, Steve and I are both pastors, as we've said, and so um, you know we deal with lots of issues, but every now and then it's important for us to get back down to the core of things, and that's why I was so interested in JD Greer uh, at his blog. He just wrote this. I just love the title. It says, uh, why does the resurrection matter? Why does uh, the resurrection matter? And he's talking about uh, the resurrection of Jesus, but then also uh, our resurrection, uh, that that this life is not all that there is. So before we look at how J.D. Greer answered this, Steve, how would you answer that question? If somebody came up to you after church one night and said, Pastor, why does the resurrection even matter? Man, um, yeah, that it's the verification. Kind of a big yeah, question, yeah, it's, right? <laughs> it's the verification that what Jesus said he came to do is accomplished. Right. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the, the centrality of the message of the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the bodily resurrection. It means that, that God received Jesus' sacrifice. Um, and so all of our sin, debt, past, present, and future was placed on Jesus, and he took the wrath of God. So um, in essence, uh, it's it's through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we are made right with God. And uh, the other element of it that I think is vitally important, especially uh, you know where we are in history right now, it means that there is a hope for a future that, that just as Jesus right. Christ resurrected from the dead, uh, we too are going to be the first. Uh, he's the firstborn from the dead, and, and we're going to be the, the secondborn uh, from the dead. We're going to be those who, just as Jesus bodily resurrected, um, we're going to bodily resurrect because we're in him and he's in us. And so that's the promise of the resurrection. And sometimes when we think about what heaven is and what, what the future holds, we think of like floaty clouds and harps and singing uh, worship songs to Jesus. Uh, and I, I love uh, yes. I love Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. But he talks about too. Uh, the experience of the everything that we know that is good here on earth. Um, because even in Genesis, when God created the world, he said at the end of it, 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 it is good. And so the space right. of heaven that we're returning to is a space where uh, we have glorified bodies and we experience all of the good things uh, of life in the presence of God. 
And so um, that's what I, our hope is. That's that's what we have to look forward to. And that's one of the reasons why I don't have to hold on so tightly to what's going on here mm-hmm. and, and feel like I have to control every detail of everything here because I know that I have a hope that's a, a sure thing. Because just as Jesus rose from the dead and because I've been united to him mm-hmm. by faith, I'm also going to resurrect from the dead. And our future reality is going to be much greater than the one now. Such a good word, and and it does bring hope in the midst of all the craziness that we've talked about, all the uh, craziness of the world around us, whether it be pandemics or politics or, like you said, the major things of life like sickness and death. Uh, and, and that's why Greer here writes, what are uh, the hope of the resurrection? Why does the resurrection matter? He looks at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, And he's going to give us four ways that our resurrection, that the fact that what Steve just said, that this life is not all that there is. Why does that matter now? So, Steve, I'm going to go through each four. I'll stop after each one uh, and let you comment on it. Number one, he says, because of the resurrection, death has no more sting. Death, whether your own or a loved one, uh, is is life's hardest experience, he says, because it feels so permanent. But if the resurrection is true, it's not permanent. It's temporary because Jesus took the sting and the permanence of death away. Like that practically matters, right? Like we've all preached this at funerals before, but that does make a difference now, does it not? Yeah. You know, I was sitting with, uh, after we, we were on the radio yesterday, I was sitting with, uh, a woman who just lost her husband, um, and, mm. and just having the, the conversation with her and visiting with her and, uh, and anybody who's lost anybody close to them knows the feeling of, um, the disjointedness that something in the world is wrong, that something is off. Right. And I think one of the reasons why we feel that is, is because you and I were created in the image of God and our original intent was to live forever and sin, uh, sin right. uh, jarred that, and um, and so now that we look to Christ as uh, as the means through which we do live again, and things get restored and renewed, man, death is a huge stinger if we don't know Christ, and yet, That's right. and yet, if we do, man, it's, it it provides an incredible amount of wholeness and peace and okay this is not all that nothing else can yeah it's so true and number two he says because of the resurrection our worst pain is light and uh, momentary god promises that your pain actually becomes part of the beautiful thing he's making you uh, and, and that pain is not a part of what's coming, whether it be chronic pain, chronic illness, disappointed dreams, a bad marriage, loneliness. Greer points out from 1 Corinthians 15 that it's all temporary. Number three, because of the resurrection, we can press forward with risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying obedience to Jesus, knowing that it's going to be worth it, he says, Uh And then number four, he says, because of the resurrection, living for Jesus is the only thing that makes sense. There's sermons to be on all three of those, but why don't you choose one of those uh, that gives you and I think gives others encouragement? Man, there's there's so, so much. I I think one one of the things that that I think in the in the here and now of what it provides for us is uh, is that like I was I was uh, I lost my mother three years ago. 
um the the grief of that experience and the process of, of of that grief and and I know other people who have lost loved ones and and they're just filled with anxiety filled with panic attacks and filled with um um not not wanting to 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 keep going and I I think for for me the reality of knowing that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me and that Jesus mm. really did rise from the dead, like regardless of what's going on in the world and, and what so-and-so says and, um, you know, and the people I disagree with or whatever, there's still like this sense of wholeness that is afforded to us because of Jesus' right. death, burial, and resurrection. So just the fact that I'm not moved uh, to panic because of Jesus' resurrection mm. Every day, it makes everything everything better. Uh, Right. It makes everything feel like purposeful. It makes everything uh, have a sense of meaning, and um, and also it it makes everything. uh, It gives it gives you the ability to not look to um, things in life to provide lasting satisfaction, comfort, joy, and peace. But it gives you the ability to be present in the moment and experience and experience the blessings right. of God in the here and now, knowing that in the future, uh, He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and and um, and shame and guilt and pain are going to be no more. Yeah, I'd encourage you out there to go give a read the First Corinthians fifteen that Greer points out here. Because the resurrection doesn't just matter for our future, it matters for our present, as Steve so well said there. Uh, and uh, it is the foundation. It, it, what, it gives us hope. So uh, lots of heavy stuff we've talked about, lots of important stuff. But I'm going to make you play a game with us now. Here it is. This is what you went to seminary for. Like, this is it. So it's going to be I'm going to read to you uh, something, and I'm going to read to you a question, and you have to tell me if that is from the Book of Lamentations or if it is a lyric from one Taylor Swift. Are you a Swifty? Are you a Taylor Swift fan? That's the other thing. I'm, I'm not familiar with a lot of, of T-Swift. <laughs> I kind of make fun of you don't have people who are, and yet I know she has you know an incredible fan club. That's right. You know what? You don't have you don't have teenage daughters, man. Uh, you don't have teenage daughters like I do. Uh, I will give a disclaimer to give Steve a little bit of a cushion here. Uh, this quiz, they take their verses from the message, so the message tends to make things sound a lot more Taylor Swifty, if you will. So uh, it's going to make this a very difficult game for you. Uh, all right, Steve, are you ready? You have not seen these. I'm going to read them to you. And you are going to tell us which you think. Are you ready to go? As ready as I'm ever going to be. All right, here we go. First one says this. Long were the nights when my days once revolved around you. Lamentations. That is uh, incorrect. That is a Taylor Swift lyric. You are 0 for 1. Here we go. Number two. It rains when you're here, and it rains when you're gone. 
Taylor Swift. Correct. <laughs> it's a hard game, isn't it? Here we go. Uh, did you have to do this? I was thinking that you could be trusted. Lamentations. Incorrect. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. <laughs> we've, we've been to hell and back. We've nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. Rivers of tears pour from my eyes. Taylor Swift. I was going to go Lamentations on that one. That's Lamentations. Ah. You're one for four. <laughs> all right, next one. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember. The feeling of hitting the bottom. Taylor Swift. Incorrect. <laughs> Lamentations. This is going better than I thought. Next one. You'll find out what it's like to get drunk and wake up with nothing. Taylor Swift. Incorrect. What? That is the book of Lamentations. <laughs> Next one. See the vultures circling dark clouds. Loves a fragile little flame. It could burn out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Lamentations. Nope. Taylor Swift. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> Like shadows in a faded light. Oh, we're invisible. Taylor Swift. Correct. I weep. I weep. Weep buckets of tears and not a soul within miles around cares. Oh, my. Lamentations. Correct. You're on a run now. Now you got it. Uh, these walls that they put up to hold us back will fall down. The time will come for us to finally win, and we'll sing hallelujah. We'll sing hallelujah. Wow. That better be Lamentations. That is Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. Time turns flames to embers. Taylor Swift. That one is Taylor Swift. You are correct. Uh, here we go. Have you ever seen anything like this? Ever seen pain like my pain? Seen what he did to Taylor me? Taylor Swift. That is the Book of Lamentations. Your last one. Here we go. And then you're not going to want to know what you got on this. <laughs> last one. I gave up on life altogether. I've forgotten what the good life is like. Taylor Swift. Is incorrect. That one was. Oh, wait, no, you have one more to go here. Here we go. You could try to get this. Uh, you could try to end on a good note. Walls of insincerity, shifting eyes, and vacancy vanished when I saw your face. Lamentations. Incorrect. <laughs> Listen, Taylor Swift is reading the Message Bible and coming up with songs. That's what she can I just say what she's doing. The the average score they said cuz now you finished the quiz so it gives you some upgrade. The average score was 61%. You got 29%. 4 out of 14. I'm like those don't sound like songs. That made me so happy. Those made me so happy. That was wonderful. <laughs> that was wonderful. Uh it does. I don't know what the takeaway there is. You just said it. 
Uh, it is as if she's maybe the most popular female singer in the world, and she's just singing Lamentations. <laughs> she's singing heavy, dark songs, isn't yeah. she? Uh, I will say, I think well, that if was I was fun. a little more familiar with Taylor Swift, I might have I got to the at least the average. And I want to give you the out there. The message does kind of screw with you a little bit. It does, uh, it does kind of mess with you. But anyway, uh, Steve did not do well in our first. I am going to bring one of those back for you. We'll, we'll try to give you another one. Uh, yeah, we'll try to give you. Who's your favorite singer? What what music oh, do you, or wow. genre of music do you rhythm like to listen to? Okay, maybe I can find one. Bible verse or rhythm and blues song. <laughs> so we'll see what we can do. Uh, anyway, that's just some fun. Bible verse or, or Lamentations or Taylor Swift. I think there's a learning in there uh, somewhere. Uh, I, I'm guessing now Steve is going to go become a Taylor. Or they're called Swifties. Oh. I don't know if you know that. A Taylor Swift fan is called a Swifty. And uh, <clears throat> maybe Steve will now become I knew a Swifty. Beyonce was the beehive, you know, but I didn't know. I didn't know Swifty. That's right. And uh, Justin Bieber fans are believers. <laughs> they are believers. So, so now you know. <laughs> That's why people come to this show is to find out these kinds of things. So, uh, as I've said, Steve is a pastor. I'm a pastor. Aubrey, who's normally here, is a pastor. Uh, and so, this show. The goal of it is to say, how do we as Christ followers in the church think through hard topics? How do we bring unity? How do we stand up for what we believe? What does that even look like in our day and age? And want to help wrestle with those things for the common good, for uh, being who the church is supposed to be. And so, Steve, there's really not many um, hornet's nests that we could step into more than just politics. How is the Christ follower— uh, supposed to think politically, react politically, uh, and think about their Christianity and how it meshes with their politics. Kevin DeYoung, he wrote this, how to think about uh, Christianity and politics. And I like this line. He said, Christians are having a hard time thinking and talking about politics because almost everyone is having a hard time thinking and talking about politics. So it's not just a Christian problem, but as we've seen, I don't know if you've seen this in your circles, but uh, passions around politics can really ruin churches. They can ruin um, friendships, people within the church. They could draw a real division. We saw that especially in the last election cycle, but it's not going to get any better, uh, whether it be uh, the, the big election coming up in 2024 or whatever else it might be. So this is a really broad question. Take this whichever way you want. How do you disciple and talk to people about how to be political, care about politics, right? We're still Americans, uh, but but do it in a Christianly way, in a way that honors Jesus. How do we hold our politics and our Christianity right now? Man, that's such a, a great question. And one of the things that I like just observing over the course of the past few years is that uh, on on one end of, of the spectrum, I think that there's people who when you look at christianity you look at some things that like w what it calls you to give up how it calls you to live it it's really difficult so when you fail at it you feel like you're a failure in life and so i think that that's right for some brothers and sisters who lean towards the conservatism 
uh, perspective or Republicanism. I, I think that there's a, a an approach to, well, I can't keep this other stuff all the way, but if I just vote this way, then I'm on, I can mm. at least do that. Um, and so, yeah. so then they, 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 you know, stamp their flag on, on that. As long as I am this one voter issue person, then uh, I can't keep, and, and really they, they're missing the gospel on that side of the lens too, because it's not that, yeah, the answer is you can't keep it all. But the beautiful uh, thing about Jesus is that he did keep it all. And by faith through the grace that he provides, he empowers and enables us to stand in his righteousness and to live for him. So then right. on, on the other side yeah. of, uh, of the spectrum, though, I think that there's, um, there's an approach that we have to have knowing that we live in a democratic Republic, right? I went to school, uh, Bible mm. college and one of the new Testament professors believed that there's no, uh, there's nothing in the scripture that, that says I have to participate in politics and God is so sovereign based on what the scripture says that God is the one who places those people in, um, in power. And, uh, I leave politics completely up to, uh, completely up to whoever else is a part of the world. And so that that's been my experience within Christian spaces is either I engage, uh, and just, I, I sit on the conservatism side, um, because, and, and, and then there's the space of, I don't sit on any side. I don't even participate. And the thing mm. that I think that's unique about our particular nation and, and particular time in history is that we live in a democratic Republic. And so we are the ones who nominate and vote in the people who are in leadership. So they are representatives of the people within that uh, democratic Republic. And so I think based on the scripture that we actually have a civic responsibility to participate in uh, loving our neighbor as ourselves. So if, hmm. if the government provides the space for uh, ensuring the well-being of other people who are made in the image of God, then I have to approach my, uh, my voting and my politics on the basis of what I feel like and sense that uh, is the way of loving my neighbor as myself. And I think that when you have that conversation with, with people, you know, it, it oftentimes comes to the place of us versus them or them versus us and uh, them over there. And, and that whole conversation of us versus them to me is completely bonkers because it, it just doesn't fit within the realm of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and we talked earlier about how, um, uh, about the, like, what the future holds for those of us who hope in Christ. Yeah. I think a number of people, are, they look at the nation and they say, this is the, the promised land and this is all that there is. So we've got to make sure that we impose our Christian ethic on all of these different areas when that's, that's not, that's not reality. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a future promised land and our job is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's our civic responsibility to participate in that democratic Republic um, and vote in such a way that based on our convictions says, Hey, I'm loving my yeah. neighbor as myself. Yeah, it's well put. I, <clears throat> I, I think what's happened in the last decade or so I've seen at least within churches is that our politics and our political leaders have become our idols. We they've, it, it's become uh, a passion to that level 
and we've forgotten that we're already members of God's kingdom and we have Amen. a Lord, but that also we are part of this world. And so we do, we participate in, um, in the political world and the set, but I love how you put for the flourishing of others. Like I should be able to look at my, my politics and go, is that helping my neighbor? Is that helping the least of these? Uh, is that helping real quickly? You, we talked yesterday. Uh, you guys are very intentional to have a multi-ethnic church. Um, is one of the difficulties of that having a multi-political uh, church, people who vote all across the spectrum? That almost seems like that would be the hardest part of it. <laughs> it is. It is really difficult. Um, it is really, really difficult. And, and in particular, in this um, in this climate, it 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 makes it even more of a challenge. And, and yet, at the same time. You know, we're in a very blue city um, in the city. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I think that there's there's a there's an approach that people have being in a in a blue city that around politics that are maybe is a little more. Um, maybe people have strong convictions, but they're not always out front with those strong convictions. They're not always uh, gotcha. championing those strong convictions. Um, but there, there always are uh, times where a few, uh, a few do, and so that, you know, that then we have to pastor, uh, we have to pastor that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which has been the case for all of us recently. Not something we saw coming, but it is certainly true. How do we think about Christianity and politics? How do we do that? Hopefully, the church will increasingly do this well in the coming. Uh, years and decades. Steve, I remember you've been on many times, and I remember in the past we talked about your illustrious uh, youth sports career. So uh, remind our audience, baseball was your sport, Baseball was the, main, was the main sport. I was best at baseball. Yeah. Uh, pitcher? Yep. I'm a, le- a left-handed pitcher. I played first base, outfield. I played uh, football and basketball as well, but by far better at baseball. Okay. And uh, were you a, uh, did you throw hard or were you one of those like cunning lefties who like just threw a lot of junk? What, what was you Steve Coble on the mound? It was mostly uh, fastballs that had a lot of movement on them and change ups. So I liked, uh, Johan Santana was a, a pitcher for the Mets that I, I liked a lot. And he was kind of like my, my uh, I like to emulate myself. Uh, so I was never overpowering, but I could sneak it by you. I could see if I – those are the best, man. I, I like those kind of pitchers. And, all right, so you were a full sp- three-sport athlete. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that when you look at your one-year-old uh, son, we learned his name is Trey, uh, that you already see visions of – like when he picks up a toy and throws it, you're probably like, oh, look at that. <laughs> or when he does – you're probably already envisioning that day, are you I not? I am. You know, my uh, my wife ran track in college at Purdue – and so I'm just kind of like, man, I'm, I think he might have the genetics. And, you know, all of those dads who miss their, you know, you know, their time, I, I feel like maybe if I had some more one-on-one attention, maybe I could be in the MLB right now. But, you know. <laughs> okay, so you have a son who has a three-sport dad and a, a D1 Big Ten track running mom. 
All right, I'm going to write his name down. I think I think we're going to see some things down the road here for sure, for sure. Um, so I, you know, my kids are obviously older than you. I have an 18 year old, a 14 year old, and a 13 year old, and particularly my my 14 year old boy loves baseball. So you and I were just talking off air. He's in the whole travel baseball circuit. That is nuts. Mm. I mean, it is craziness. Um, the amount of money and time and all this stuff, but it's also a ton of fun. And uh, my daughter, my 13-year-old, plays uh, softball, also plays volleyball. So uh, it, it's fun, man. It's fun to be a parent with, with kids who play sports. And, uh, you know, it's expensive. Start saving now. But, but it is the world that we live in. But here's the interesting thing I wanted to think about. Uh, youth sports get a lot of, um, and sometimes for good reason, uh, get a lot of uh, fingers pointed at it, right? Like it's people say bad things about youth sports, but I would also say um, playing sports as a kid, as a teenager teaches you things for life. It teaches you things that are going to be helpful as an adult, even if you never make it to the major league Mm -hmm. baseball or you never make it to the NFL or whatever else. So you played a lot more athletics than I did. My athlete, my athletic career started much younger, uh, ended much younger, I should say. Uh, But I love sports. Uh, what did playing athletics, baseball, football, basketball, what kinds of lessons did it teach you that even have helped you as you've gone into adulthood and ministry and fatherhood and whatever yeah, else? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that that you don't realize when you're doing it that later on it, it becomes incredibly clear for people who didn't play those kind of, of youth sports is that you – you understand how to navigate through difficult situations pretty early. So, you know, whether or not you're in middle school and, you know, you got a runner on first base and you got to throw a strike, you know, I need to throw this strike in mm-hmm. order to, so, so that we're not in a bad situation. Some of those like rising to the moment um, situations, you start to learn really, really early on. And then you got all those, you know, practices you're going to and, and uh, people you're listening to. There's there's the space of submitting to authority that I think that a lot of people, uh, mm. are, you know, don't get coming up, uh, you know, if, if they're going to school and, 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 you know, they got scholarships for academics or, you know, whatever. They, you know, there might be some, like, positive uh uh, sort of that comes from like getting good grades in school. I, and obviously I believe there is, but I think that there's a certain level of like tenacity and grit that you get from, and, and that's mm. just the reality, reality of life. So then when something gets hard and you have to navigate acceptance versus rejection or making the team versus not making the team, like you got to rise to the occasion. Um, and then one of the other things that I think that I learned through uh, playing high school sports uh especially you know my mom was she was she was kind of like you can play as much as you want to play and from her perspective having that structure was really beneficial to me not getting in trouble and so the structure Mm. of going to practice and the discipline that it that it takes uh to practice and to lift weights and to prepare um gave me a certain level of focus that I think when you get into adult life, you just don't have that same level of structure. And I, I think that it helped create certain levels of discipline in the regular rhythm of my life because of those sports. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, little public service announcement as a uh, 
you sport parent, please don't be one of the. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people out there. Don't be one of those people <laughs> uh, who make it. I, Steve, I, I was at a base, my son's baseball game the other day and uh, saw it again. A, a uh, he's in 14U. Coach got ejected for uh, for getting in the face of an umpire. I've been at games this year where parents have gotten ejected. Like, don't be, don't be that oh, person. Just don't be that person. Uh, but but yeah, I think sports teach us a lot of things about teamwork, about being part of mm-hmm. a team, about uh, looking past differences for a common goal. Right? Like, uh, I don't think a lot of sports you look at like, oh, do they think? Do they like the same restaurant as me, or do they? Blah, right. blah, blah. Nope, we're right. trying to win a championship, or we're trying to do this, uh, and a bunch of other things. Do you still play sports? Do you still play? You anything? know, I got in the basketball right league this past year, and I just realized I'm I'm just a little too old. I got in stage osteoarthritis <laughs> in my shoulder, and one of the one of the Ooh. last games that that we played, a guy probably around my age tore his Achilles. And so I was just like, ah, I don't know if this is for me anymore. I'll stick to the elliptical. Uh, you hit that age, right? Yeah. About a couple of years ago, I was playing slow pitch church softball, you know, like in playing. And I've always played that with our with some buddies. And I was probably at 40, you know, probably right around 40. And I was like, how many times can I pull my <laughs> hamstring before I just stop playing these games? I'm like. I have just died here. So I was like, I think I'm done. I think I'm just going to increasingly watch my kids play. Well, youth sports, I do think they are an important thing. I know they've gotten a little bit out of control in our culture, but uh, there is a beauty to them that I would encourage you uh, to kind of engage with your kids with. Uh, The world changes quickly, Steve. Things move and move. Uh, 1994, what have we decided? I'm 10 years older than you, I think. So in 1994, I was 17. So you're seven. Is that, am I right? You're eight. All right. All right. So we're close to each other. Uh, I want you to think back to 19, like when I think of 1994, it doesn't feel that long ago. Uh, It doesn't feel, I know it was 26 years ago now. but part of the re- part of the thing about aging is like it doesn't go that fast. Like you're like, oh, I remember 1994. I remember what life was like. And then you are every now and then confronted with how different it was. Let me play for you a clip. Uh, it's from the Today Show in 1994. Bryant Gumble, Katie Couric, and I don't know who the other woman is. There's another woman there. And then you're going to hear the Today Show people of today reflect on it. So Savannah Guthrie, uh, Al Roker, and the like. Listen to this. The A and then the ring around it. <laughs> See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I've never heard or it. I've never heard it said. I don't see the mark. There it is. Violence at NBC. GE. Com. I mean. Well, what well, Allison should know. What, what do you is say internet that, anyway? What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison. Can you explain what internet is? <laughs> Where is Allison? Times have changed. Allison was our Google. Yeah, she was. Yeah. We had a moment like that earlier this week. Remember we were talking, we were talking about, about like cryptocurrency. cryptocurrency. Oh, we're yes. like, we don't get it. What does this? What are we Bitcoin? saying right now that in the year 2044 or whatever the next one is? We're saying what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin. <laughs> what yes. is Libra? All right, that is hilarious. It's 1994. And Bryant Gumble and Katie Kirk are trying to figure out what the internet is, like what the at symbol is and the dot com. And I just love that they turn to the other lady on the couch and go, what is this internet thing? <laughs> <laughs> like, Steve, isn't that wild to think like 
you and I have lived, our childhoods did not have any of this as a part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is, it is funny because everything that we do every day is kind of centered around the internet now in, in some shape, way or form in, in terms of communication or in terms of even what we're doing, uh, right now, right, right now. Uh, so it's hard yeah. to imagine, but I still, I, I still remember the, the dial up uh operation yes and nobody could be on the phone if if uh if, <laughs> if you were you, you were using the internet yes it's so true instant messenger was the cool it was the first form of text messaging isn't it true i remember uh my i had an uncle who was like we went to his house and he was like you got to hear this internet they see this internet and we were like what are you talking about i didn't get my first email address till i went to yeah, college yeah. and uh this will blow your mind. I did this. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There was a story that they removed a um, a payphone from Times Square in New York, and that was the final payphone. That was the last payphone in the city of New York. There was not. There is not a payphone anywhere in the city of New York. And I was trying to explain to my kids, like. Here's how a payphone worked, you know, like you put it in or you called your parents collect or you did this like so much has changed. And I don't feel that old, but life yeah. just changes. These things change. And so the people on the Today Show ask an interesting question. Uh, I think it was a Carson Daly then said, what will be going on in life 26 years from now? Because that's what this is. 26 years or I uh, know 28 years. What will be going on 28 years from now that people will look back and be like, how did you not know what that Mm. was? And they mentioned cryptocurrency. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. Anything come to mind? Let's dream 28 (laughs) years from now. What could the world be like that is normal where we're like, yeah, no, that was never something that we even thought about. So I'm not I'm not great at at dreaming, but. You know, when you think of like Back to the Future and and some of those some of those movies that were like looking yep. forward to, even like the Terminator or, or something that looks looks to the future around stuff. But the first thing that comes to mind is uh, is that people will no longer know what a gasoline uh, fueled car is in twenty twenty six. Interesting. Years. That's interesting. I remember uh, when I was. This uh, when nineteen when I was in fourth grade, so it was like nineteen eighty six, eighty seven. They had us do a project of life in the year two thousand, uh, which is now a long time ago, yeah, yeah. right? And I remember the cover of my project was flying cars. I basically made the yeah, Jetsons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and you remember the Jetsons? It was all about like you be able to talk on the phone and you be able to see the person, and you're like, well, that's just yeah. FaceTime now. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is an interesting one that you say that that gasoline. I think you might be right. Have you done any reading or seen any of these stories? I don't know if they'll come, but like, there are places in other countries like Japan and stuff where their trains go so fast oh, yeah. that you could get from Chicago to New York in like yeah, two hours. I've been on on. Like, could you imagine if that happens? Crazy. I yeah, that is crazy. I I've been on the bullet train in in uh, Beijing, China, um, before. For real, it was it was. It was kind of wild. Does it feel as fast as it is, or are you like used to it because you're inside? I think it? You get used to it after a while, like after like thirty minutes, you're like, okay. 
I mean, could you imagine? Like, I grew up out there. I grew up out in New York and be like, hey, I'm going to go meet a buddy that I grew up with in the city. Uh, I'm going to hop the train down here in Chicago and I'll be there before lunch. I mean, that's nuts. That's just craziness to think about. But there might come a day where people are like, wait, you drove 12 (laughs) hours to get there? You got in a plane? Like, what did you do? I mean, I can't imagine. So uh, let's turn this. Here's the deal. Anything in your mind that says the church of the next generation will look different or or how we do church is how we're going to do church. Anything come to mind for you? All right. So I don't know if this is uh, is a possibility or how this like it depends on how the multi-site thing uh, plays out. But I could see like hologram uh, hologram pastor preacher (laughs) instead of LED screen or the multi-site goes to to hologram 3D. Could you imagine? I I don't think I look good in person, let alone a hologram. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what that would look like. I do wonder uh, if the church of the future will be bigger, if it'll be smaller, Uh if it'll be, like you said, very virtual, if it'll be, you wonder. The good news is, let's end here, uh, Jesus isn't changing. So Jesus says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, we can at least hold on to that, yes, can't sir. we, my friend? That is a, a beautiful, a beautiful reminder and a beautiful hope, because uh, a lot of stuff changes, um, and yet the one whose whose hand we hold, uh, he stays the same. Amen, amen. Uh, and so, what I would encourage you is to hold off, man, like twenty years to get that shoulder done. <laughs> Who knows? What right. they, they might be able right. to put like. You might be throwing like 120. They might be able to make you fly. Who knows what they're going to be able to make you do. So we'll just wait that out. Well, we're really glad that you joined us. We wanted to end there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Ground your life in that. Build your life upon that. Steve, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Coming back tomorrow, right? I'll be here one more time. One more time. We're looking forward to it. Until then, we hope that you all have a great day. For Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.